0: Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash lineup. Hello everyone. And welcome to the lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 93. We are days away from the final event on the 2021 WSL Challenger Series, the Michelob Ultra Pure Gold Haleiwa Challenger on Oahu's North Shore. It is the last opportunity for those looking to be next up on the Elite Championship Tour in 2022 and will be broadcast live at worldsurfleague.com. Do not miss it. Now, related to today's episode, 1977 world champion and WSL co-founder Sean Thompson brought to our attention an absolute crisis that is happening on the wild coast of the Transguy in South Africa. Shell and CGG are conducting seismic surveys on the wild coast at the moment, which can cause devastating effects on the marine ecology there. We encourage everyone to check this out, and if you agree, sign the change.org petition that objects to the Shell and CGG seismic surveys on the RSA coast. We'll put the link to the petition in the show notes. All right, episode 93. Today's guest is someone who was a late starter in surfing, but rose to become one of the African continent's most celebrated surfers. A world amateur champion in 2002, he then went on to battle on the championship tour for a decade, trading blows with the world's best as one of the universally respected fastest surfers on the planet. Since stepping away from full time competition, he's become a critical architect in the redesign of the WSL tours and competition framework. And he currently oversees the developmental tiers of the pro junior qualifying and challenger series. Making this a timely conversation ahead of the qualification showdown in Haleva. We talk about all this and more. Please enjoy the lineups conversation with Durbin's Travis Logie. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We
1: can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put him up once,
0: let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. I'm talking were boxing. All right. We've got South Africa's Travis Logie, the Q Missioner, on the lineup today. Travis, thanks for joining <laughs> us. Thanks, Davey. Finally, you got me on. I've been waiting for the call up. <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah, you're a hard guy to track down. But, uh, but how are you doing today? Where are you today? Who are you hanging out with? I'm doing good, thanks. I'm actually in
1: West Hollywood, good old good old WeHo, and yeah, just cruising. Went for a
0: quick surf this morning and and back in the in the beast of LA. I'm glad you brought that up because my opening question for you is a direct one, which is: Is El Porto the Durban of America in terms of wave quality?
1: Um, Jeez, that's a tough one because
0: I don't want to,
1: I don't want to disappoint my friends back home (laughs) and I don't want to say bad things about where I live now, but um, no, I I guess, I guess it's consistent. It's really consistent, which is similar to back home, but um, Durban is just, it's just the land of the right-hander off the piers, rip balls. And, um, El Porto is not really any of that. I guess in the wintertime, it can get insane. But um, for the most part, it's it's pretty granny. But it does the job, you know?
0: It, that's not a definitive no. So I think all the El Porto <laughs> locos should feel like right at home if they go to Durban. Well,
1: I'm there every day pretty much, so it can't be that bad.
0: That's right, yeah. and, and In all fairness, you have cemented yourself as one of the elite surfers in LA County since you moved here. You're winning board rider events. Your clip (laughs) production is through the roof. You've really assimilated pretty well.
1: Yeah, I guess so. You know, it's just, it's just happened organically. And I I love it over here. I've met some really cool people. And yeah, like I said, El Porto, there's always something down there. I mean, even on the days it looks terrible, you look at the cam, but, and the, the, the drive for me is not an easy one to do either, but I normally just put my head down and do it. And
0: I'm always better off for it. I love it. All right, well, we're going to switch gears a, a little bit. We are going to get into to proper Durban conversation. But first, I thought it'd be appropriate, given that this is going to drop right before the final Challenger Series event of the season in Haleiwa. And you oversee the Challenger Series. So maybe... Explain to the listeners what your official role is, and, and in so much as you can describe your day-to-day, what do you end up doing most days?
1: Yeah, I guess it's, it's pretty it's pretty broad, so it's hard to describe really, but mainly I oversee the, the QS Challenger Series and, and the Junior Tours. So just to try to simplify it, I'm in charge of the rules, the regulations, the schedule, the career path when the events run, how they run, basically how we qualify athletes into the WCT, very, very high line, quick look at what I do. Um, and day to day is obviously dealing with a lot of the regions around the world. We've got seven different regions and employees, um, all over the world. So dealing with those guys, making sure everything's running smoothly, helping them out with their events and their athletes, and then dealing with, with the athletes, you know, we have, uh, thousands of members and, uh, So communicating with them and keeping them up to speed and listening to their queries and concerns um, is a big part of what I do.
0: And I I think we could probably talk about this, but I'm going to screw the years up, too. I'm going to say it was probably 2018, maybe, on the Gold Coast. And we had the tourism competition commissioner's office meeting. Um, We're working through a bunch of formatting stuff, which we do pretty much every week. And we were given the task of what would you know, a playoff for the world title look like, or what would a single day event look like? And I don't know if this has been confirmed, but you were the one that came up with the Rip Curl WSL finals format. And that really was like the beginning of a journey that brought us to 2021 through COVID and all this other stuff. But really unlocking that format and unlocking the thinking of who would be competing and how it would work provided that anchor point through which we reverse engineered pretty much the entire system, you know, the championship tour, the challenger series, regional qualifying series. I guess my question is on the day with their little poster (laughs) boards on the Gold Coast, were you thinking like, oh yeah, this is going to work. And then, you know, flash forward to lowers the season. Were you like, I can't believe that worked?
1: Yeah, actually, no. I mean, obviously I blurted it out in that meeting and I I had that format in my mind for quite a while, but I've always just been that kid in class when even though I knew the right answer, I've always been too scared to say it out loud because I don't know. So I had it for a while. I didn't it was so radical and so different um, that I never really mentioned it to anybody. And I, I d- definitely didn't have it completely flushed out. But you know, we had that those two full days of meetings and boards everywhere and post-it notes everywhere, and the ultimate brainstorming 48 hours, and then we had Dirk came in and and just the way we would, the, the problems he was describing to us and, and the solutions that, that format just applied perfectly. And after like thinking about it for a couple of hours, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to say it. And then I, I blurted out that I called it at the time, the linear firm, format, I guess you could say it's vertical or whatever, but just in my mind, I had it going linear and yeah, it, uh, it, it ticked all the boxes and solved all the problems and, and we, got to have a winner on the, the final heat of the year, which is, which is awesome. And I, I guess the numbers proved us right at the end of the day and, and props have to go to, to the leadership team for, for implementing it because it's one thing coming up with the format, but believing in it and going through all the steps because it wasn't easy getting there and getting everyone to believe in it. So, um, yeah, super stoked to be a part of that process.
0: Yeah. It's funny because it it, it is really like the most important moment. For certainly our company, I'd argue, kind of like surfing writ large uh, every year. And you're right, we did have like a two day post it notes, things everywhere kind of session. But then, you know, you, whether you marinated on the topic for a couple hours or not, when you explained it, it was very clear and it took like five minutes. And we wrote it up on the board and we're looking at it. And then we're like, yeah, that's probably good enough, at least to kind of like go out to the, like other conversations with and see what it works. And then, every time someone brings it up, it's like, well, did it take years to develop? And I'm like, no, Travlik nailed it in five minutes. And (laughs) we kind of just were like, this is ready. It's baked. We're going to see how it works. And that was my experience on the day too, because it really played out in the sense of, okay, how are you going to create something that doesn't create too much of an advantage for one surfer, but also doesn't disadvantage the surfers that perform throughout the year? And It really kind of played out almost perfectly as a proof of concept, right? Like you had certainly on the men's side, you had Gabriel who'd had such a dominant year and was like the best surfer of the in the world in a lot of ways, beating an on-fire Felipe Toledo, who people were calling the best surfer at Lower Trestles, in large part because of the format. Like Felipe was just kind of gassed by the time he ended up getting to Gabriel and and it kind of worked out as intended, which is kind of rare for us to happen at the WSL.
1: Yeah, I mean, even, even after that meeting and we, just, we discussed it afterwards and it sounded like a good solve and a, and a, and a great format and, and an exciting way to end the year, I still wasn't super convinced. And what, what really got me across the line on the whole thing is when I went home a couple of days later and I, and I started putting in the names of the last couple of years, the top five surfers. And I was like, holy shit, this could be freaking exciting, like really, really cool. And the fact that, you know, it, it still gives so much value to the whole year because being every rung higher on that ladder at the end of the year is so important. I mean, the further back you are, your odds just drop off so dramatically having to surf against that caliber of surfer and get through that caliber of surfer. So if you do, it's really hard to argue that you don't deserve it because you've gone and you've beaten the best surfers in the world back to back to back. And so yeah, it's it's really cool. I'm I'm stoked it went off so well. And uh I think it was a great year one for it for sure.
0: Totally. And as we said, that was the anchor point in how we reverse engineered the design of pretty much everything. Um you know, when we when we worked on that linear format for the the Rip Curl WSL Finals initially, we we hadn't I don't think we even had a concept of a three-tier system or a challenger series kind of existing in this middle tier. We obviously had high-profile QS events, but it wasn't the same thing. And you know, we had COVID hit and, and, and sort of a, a janky 2020-2021 implementation. 2022, we're planning on kind of the full flight of implementing this three-tier system. But you've been in the thick of it, you've been in the trenches on the Challenger Series this year. What have been some of your observations just from the events we've had, um, how it's been working from a design standpoint and and what you've observed in the surfers in terms of of pluses and minuses for for the Challenger Series?
1: Yeah, I think the whole restructure of, of qualifying through the regions onto the Challenger Series has been really positively received. The feedback has been amazing. And then it was all down to execution. And I think that's gone off really well as well. The events have been insane Um, and really looking forward to see how it rolls out in the future when we have more more challenger events for next year. And, you know, the whole thing just made sense to when surfers leave their region, they're leaving for the highest level event besides the CT that they go to. So it's more points, more prize money. So in the old model, although it's it worked and it, it functioned and we qualified the right surfers for the most part. Once you are finished with the juniors, you just have to fly around the world and keep going um, and spending thousands and thousands of dollars. So like you said, we were looking at implementing something like this model, maybe um, 23, 24, even 25 and slowly grandfathering it in and just putting more and more importance on the regional tours. Um, But then when COVID hit, it kind of was our opportunity to reset and we really didn't have a choice like having international travel for for. The Challenger Series and the CT at the moment is, as you know and as everyone knows, it's it's challenging as it is. So, to have that factor for every level of QS, even the smaller ones with less prize money and less tourism money out there, it it just would have been really challenging. So, keeping everyone and and getting the best of each region to the Challenger Series, buff is a way better model. Um, it's way better for the surfers. It's less traveling, and when they do travel, they're going for the for the biggest and best events. So, it's worked out great so far. The the level of surfing is. Um, like I even said at the US Open, I couldn't believe how high the level was. It was the highest level I've ever seen for a, for that level of, of event, Challenger Series or 10,000. I think having some time off for the surfers was actually beneficial. Uh, a lot of them raised their game and um, also just getting, there's some new faces around because we were able to use the regional tour. So um, another, another positive byproduct of it is that it really opens up the opportunity for everybody. Uh, you can go from from zero to on the CT pretty much in the same year, uh, which it, it it has happened only once. I think Ethan Ewan was was the only person that managed to do that. Now it's way more likely because, like I said, you can come from your region and then go straight on to onto the Challenger Series and then that's your shot. So, yeah, it's really exciting.
0: Have there been any surfers just through, I guess, like the US Open, Erasera, um, Hasegor so far, the, um, men's or women's or both? that you've been surprised by, or just you've been impressed by in terms of how they performed? Um, Because you're really kind of on the front lines of who's next for qualifying for the championship tour. I'm wondering if anyone stood out to you in particular.
1: Yeah, for sure. I think surprised me. I think, um, Imai Kalani. I think I mean, he's always been a great surfer, but just what he's doing in heats, because he's always been an an amazing free surfer, been a huge fan of his, but what he, what he did, did in his heats um, at all the events was just next level. He's really stepped up and, Really pumped to see him so high up in the ranking. So that could be a cool new face on the CT for next year if he seals the deal in Haliva. And then on the women's side, um, it wasn't so much of a surprise because I kind of saw them coming for a while. But that Hawaiian contingent of uh, Gabriella Bryan, Luana Silva and Betty Lou Secura Johnson, geez, those girls are on a, on another level. Some of their performance. Uh, Betty Lou Sakura has probably had some of the best single heats I've ever seen on in the women's side of surfing. She hasn't really strung together the consistency like the other two girls, but um, I'm sure when she does, she's going to bang out some huge results. But that little contingent's got a a huge future ahead of them.
0: I think that's one of the nice things about this three tier system. And even when we were having these initial conversations with the championship tour surfers uh, earlier this year in June, and we were kind of confidentially taking them through here's what the CT looks like, here's where the mid year cutoff is. Um, here's what the Challenger series looks like. And you start talking about you know, Snapper Rocks in May and, and Sydney and um, you know, Bolido and US Open and Aracera and Hosagor, and and Piha and Haliva. And so many of these venues are premium venues that have existed on the championship tour before. And the feedback from a lot of the CT surfers who were probably just thirsty to compete because they have been sitting on their butts through COVID mostly, were like, oh, I'm going to do all 18 events. This sounds great. but but, from a like a talent standpoint and a development standpoint, I, I think it's so critical because you are having to surf against better surfers on the Challenger series and you are having to surf at venues that that more closely represent c t conditions in a lot of ways from a performance standpoint. So, is that something that you'd agree with in the sense of we could just be getting like sharper and better prepared classes of Challenger Series qualifiers for the championship tour than we did in the previous system where you'd kind of come through and there could be, you know, a hundred events that you just did well at some of the venues, but not maybe some critical ones. hundred
1: percent. I mean, even if you look at the, the Challenger Series events we just ran in Europe, um, it was probably the first time we've ever had a Challenger Series level or QS 10,000 level where we had a full on waiting period. So we were able to have multiple, um, lay days and thank goodness for that. Cause there were some really challenging forecasts, but when we did run the waves were insane. Um, some of the best waves we've ever had for a challenger series. So that's, that can only help us qualify the right people, you know, the best surfers and the best waves. So they're proving themselves out there. They're getting the points rather than, you know, it, you definitely tend to get more surprises and more upsets when the wave quality drops. So um, yeah, no excuses, I guess.
0: I love it. And uh, I think by the time this drops, we'll be on our way to the final stop in Hale-Eva. Um, You've competed out there quite a lot yourself in your own career. Any predictions on, on what to expect for, for fans or, or any predictions on what to expect from the, the surfers?
1: Yeah, it's going to be a wild one, I think. I, I was just having a look at the the rankings and almost every surfer in the event, both men's and women's, could qualify. So it's going to be crazy. It's, it's, it's going to come down to who performs. Um, I'm really hoping we get some waves. It's a great time of year for Haliva, obviously. And um, yeah, it's, it's all going to go down. Every heat's going to mean so much. So it's going to be one of the most exciting events, qualification events we've ever seen.
0: I love it. Well, we're going to get a quick word in from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to dive into your uh, professional career. So we'll be right back. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. Shopify. So so we opened up by joking about how El Porto, according to you, is is definitively the Durban of, of America. But you were born in Durban, South Africa, 1979, which blows me away because you look like a young man. A long um, time ago. And a 42 is v- very, very young. But what was it like? What was your family like? And, and what was Durban like in, I guess, it was in the early 80s? Yeah, it was an interesting place to grow up. I mean, you, when you're that young, you're completely
1: oblivious about all the stuff that's going on around you um obviously super unstable region and country but growing up i was obviously pretty sheltered and i, I didn't even go to the beach or i mean also i went to the beach with my family and stuff but i never like started surfing or had any interest in it till much later in life so the first time i actually really started surfing was i got a early christmas present um and I think I was eleven, just about to turn twelve years old. So I only, I started surfing really late, and it wasn't a wasn't a thing growing up in my family. I only wanted to surf because my older brother was my hero. We used to travel around as a family, and he was a really good swimmer. He almost made the Olympics at one stage. So my whole childhood was traveling around the country watching him swimming, watch uh, winning swimming races. Um, he started surfing, and obviously I wanted to copy him. Um, me and my little brother and started surfing. Yeah, pretty late, and then just got absolutely hooked on it, obviously. I remember the first time I actually stood up on a wave. I still remember it so vividly. I was like, oh, I'm screwed. I'm gonna do this for the rest of my life. This is amazing. <laughs> so yeah, I started surfing relatively late and then, and then all, all through um, high school, I I wasn't allowed to surf during the week. So I was only surfing on weekends all the way through high school. And then uh, obviously I- threw. Well, why, why, why was that? Why weren't you allowed to surf during the week? Well, high school? We, my, my parents obviously had work and stuff and, um, they wanted me to focus on high school and we lived a little bit of a drive away from the beach. So it was just like the weekends off for surfing. And I was, I started doing pretty well towards the the latter years of, of high school. Um, I won a few South African champs and, and Natal champs, which is the state that I lived in. But it wasn't, I was never really thinking I was going to be a professional surfer, to be honest with you. It just, it just, I just kind of slowly rose. And then the last couple of years in high school, I started re- doing really well nationally. And then, um, When I finished high school, pretty much right after I finished high school, my dad got an apartment on the beach in Durban. So it was just the perfect storm. I was able to surf every day because I was like, I'm going to take a couple months off and figure out what I'm going to do with my life. And um, so I was surfing every day. And then in six months, I think that first six months off, my surfing just improved exponentially. And then I started winning a lot of events back home. I was still a junior, so I was entering events and doing the juniors and the men's, and a lot of them I was winning both. So my sponsor at the time, Gotcha, was like, oh, let's let's try send you to Europe. And they gave me a huge contract, (laughs)
0: $3,000.
1: My first professional contract was $3,000.
0: Um, so I used that. That, 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 wasn't like a red flag for you. You're like, Oh, this is going to go well. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I was, everything was a bonus to me cause I never had aspirations of being a, a pro surfer until that at the end of my first year out of high school, because I was like, I was, it was just going so well, I was like, Oh my gosh. And then a few people were like, Hey, you could have a real dig at this to the point where my sponsors unsolicited. were like, we want to send you to Europe for the U S S so. So yeah, I went, uh, I went to Europe and I did, I did pretty decent. And then the next year they gave me enough money to do Europe and Brazil. And then the next year after that, I did Europe and Brazil again. So I never had, my first three or four years out of high school, I still didn't like have a proper go at it, like the full QS or anything, but it came and it just it just gradually, I think everything just happened late in life for me. So um, that's how it went and it was, it was kind of by accident. And then, yeah, ended up on the CT for 10 years. <laughs>
0: that's a that's an accident for most people i think but what was there was there other sport for you we did you play soccer or did you do anything else in high school or what was the
1: yeah there was i guess how
0: did you balance those interests soccer was
1: my big thing when i was growing up i was convinced i was actually going to be a Professional soccer player. So, thank goodness surfing came along because there was no chance that was ever going to happen.
0: Uh, what what I mean, I've, 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 I mean, it's all relative, right? We're playing on a dirt lot in Brazil with, you know, the Ewok judges yeah. and some ex pro <laughs> surfers barefoot, but you're pretty good. Like, what position did you play?
1: Yeah, I was, I was on the wing or, or in midfield. You know, when you're at Grom, you just kind of just float around everywhere. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. But yeah, I guess it. I kind of settled on the wing. Um, I was, I was decent, but I was never. You know, I I played till pretty much when I went into high school and then I kind of stopped. And and then at at school, I started, obviously high school, I started surfing. That kind of took everything away. I I, I played, I was pretty decent at water polo at school. Played water polo for a couple of years, but surfing just took precedence over over everything. Um, And uh, yeah, I was, I was, I'm a huge soccer fan still to this day. I watch watch soccer almost more than I watch surfing, (laughs) to admit it, but yeah.
0: who, yeah. who's your team who's uh, your team for the listeners arsenal's
1: my team i can say that now i wouldn't have said that a couple months ago because they were having a huge shock about their back
0: <laughs> <laughs> well and i'm curious too right because we we talk to so many people and, and a lot of surfers that are very high level and and i've said this a few times on the podcast but they really kind of fall into two camps you have on on the one side you know, people who were basically like born in the barrel, they're like dynastic surfing families. Their their dad was on tour and their grandfather, you know, built boards for famous people, whatever it is, right? And then at the other end, you have people who didn't come, no one in their family surfed and they they, they didn't really live at the beach and it wasn't really handed to them, um, which isn't to say the alternative was bad, but it was just they had to fight for it. Did you did you feel like that as well, not being able to surf every day? And I'm, I'm wondering too if you had contemporaries that you competed against who, who did live at the beach and who maybe got to surf way more than you. And if there was any kind of dynamic there with, with those surfers.
1: Yeah. At the time growing up and being in high school and only being able to surf on the weekends, it destroyed me. It used to drive me nuts, but honestly it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I'm still such a grom to this day. I'm still so excited about surfing. Absolute rubbish. All my thing, my friends think I'm crazy. And I had friends and some of my best friends still to this day who were just spoiled for choice. You know, they lived on the beach, they were surfing before school, after school every day. And the novelty kind of wore off for them pretty early and it still hasn't worn off for me because I think because of those years I haven't really taken it for granted. Obviously there's days where I'm whinging like everybody else, but for the most part, I, I just, um, I just remember those times where I couldn't go surf and it was like, I mean, you can imagine being a young kid and you start doing well and doing well in events. All you want to do is be out there. And then a few of the, the guys I was competing against were dropping out of high school and doing homeschooling. So they were surfing even more. And that was hard to take because I wasn't able to do that. But, you know, it, it all happens for a reason. I, I, I'm convinced that having to do that helped me in the end because um, all those early mornings at Bells when it's freezing cold and you got to go for your warm-up surf, stuff like that. It was just a, lot, a little bit easier to take having dealt with all of that growing up you know
0: well and it's i'm glad you brought that up too because that's another phenomenon that you and i have to uh, not have to but you and i really kind of observe and orbit in surfing right now which is the rise of homeschooling and and really kind of the loss of of surfers and young surfers in particular kind of going to public school and finishing high school and, and getting a degree or even kind of considering college. Like so many young surfers that that we see come through the system right now are, are getting the variances for them to uh, pull out of public school and do homeschooling so they can travel the world and train and surf whenever you want. And I'm curious, um, since you oversee like the development part of surfing, what your thoughts are on that?
1: Yeah, look, I, I don't, it's, it's not chemistry, right? Becoming a pro surfer and making it and being successful. There's not one formula to do it. Um, I think as a parent, you have to figure out what's going to be right for your kids and you, and you got to know, know your child. If, if I think my parents knew if I started homeschooling, that was going to be for for school. I wasn't going to finish high school. So they knew. let's, let's keep him in high school. Make sure he finishes, gets his degree or whatever. Um it works for some people it doesn't work work for others and you just have to be careful because both are so important i get it like i lived it 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 becomes your life um but both are super super important so if you can finish school and tick all those boxes and get an education and still manage to go to all the events then that's obviously the best the best option right um it is happening more and more uh obviously the, the sport has exploded in the last 20 years and there's A lot of endorsements and sponsorship money around so the the temptation is there to get the kids out early and just get them on the beach and get them surfing and uh sometimes it works amazingly and other times it's it's a missed opportunity to explore other stuff
0: yeah so you're out of high school um you unsolicited your sponsors are saying why don't you go do some qs events and you're starting to do really well there and then 2002 the isa world games comes to durban and you win, you win the ISA World Title at home. Walk us through your experience in in I guess learning that it was going to come to Durban in the first place. If you felt like you had an advantage because you'd surf there so much and that uh, is your spot, um, and then just what it was like to win.
1: Yeah, that was huge for me. Um, I've been to a few ISA World Games as a junior, and then as an Open, I went to um, Huntington Beach as a junior, and then to Portugal. As as an open in the open men's division, and I'd done all right, but um, when they heard when I heard they were coming to to South Africa and to Durban and North Beach, like where I was surfing every single day, I was like, oh man, I I have to have to win this event, and I I probably almost put in more work into winning that event than I ever have, Uh, partly because because the way the whole South African team was looked after, it was such a big thing back home, so you know the team was was hiring sports psychologists for us and we're having uh training sessions twice a day a fitness session in the morning swimming and then surfing and heats in the afternoon and this went on for months leading up to the ISA world games yeah it was it was a great way to finish off especially in the in the final i was i think i was pretty much comboed with like seven or eight minutes left to go and there were two brazilians in the final and they were kind of a little bit. It was because it was a four-man final, and they were kind of tag teaming me a little bit and paddled me all the way into the, to the other side of the pier. And I was like, "Oh man, the stream's slipping away!" And I somehow managed to break free and got wide down the beach. And in a space of like four minutes, I got two really good waves by myself and went from fourth to first. And uh, yeah, the siren went. I was on the beach. It was it was an amazing day. It's pretty funny too because I was. Even though we all lived there, the, the team got together and we all stayed a ho- in a hotel on the beach. And um, the night before the final day, I, I was sharing a room, a room with my best friend, Warwick Wright, who was also in the South African team, and he was in the juniors. And he'd been knocked into the repechage. and you know how many heats you have to surf through to get to the final <laughs> then. So I had I was in the semifinals the next day, so I had two heats if I didn't lose in, lose in the semifinals, it would have been three if I did. And he had seven. And uh, he was he was crying the night before. He's like, oh, I'm not gonna do it. You're gonna win." <laughs> and I was like, "Don't <laughs> worry, bro. We're gonna both win tomorrow. I guarantee you." And then we both won. It was so sick. My, me and my best friend. Uh, he won the juniors. I won the opens at our home beach. It was insane. That's awesome.
0: The 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 note you had on on being so well taken care of and the sports psychologist, and I'm I'm sure. Throughout the, you know, coming up on five decades of professional surfing, people have used sports psychs before, but it, it you know, I started about 16 years ago and it I don't know if anyone was using one at the time and it was a pretty uncommon scene um, and it's probably a lot more um, normalized now um, and probably necessary for a lot of people that are trying to win CT events and win world titles. But I, I am curious in, in terms, and I think the listeners would be too, in terms of for surfing, what kind of stuff does a sports psychologist work with an athlete on? Well, what did you guys work on? Because it's one thing to be really good at surfing. It's another thing to have the confidence that you can win. Um, and just hearing you talk about it, where your intention is I'm going to go win this event. I know a lot of surfers on the CT that never think that, you know, they're just like, oh, I'm going to go out and surf my best. Yeah. So I'm curious if, if those things are related and, and what, what kind of things you work on in terms of sports psychology?
1: Yeah. So I've only really done sports psychology as a group like that. It's, there's been a few teams, our, our state team back in, our provincial team back in South Africa did it a few years as well where they got a, 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 a sports psychologist to come talk to the group for a few sessions. And then the few times I did make the South African team and surf in the ISA World Games, they did it a few of those times as well. So I've only really had it in a group, not on a one-to-one basis. So when it's when it's in a group, it's it definitely feels like they do sessions where they can get as much information out there without, um, wasting too much time. So I'm sure there's more to it, but most of the stuff we're working on is just visual, visualization, um, calming them out, basically meditation. Um, and that helped me immensely. Like I have never had a problem with strategy. I've never had a problem with nerves and heats. I, I, have hardly ever got nervous for a heat. I'm way more nervous to do this podcast than I ever was to serve any heats on the CT. It's weird. But I think just being able to learn how to properly visualize and meditate and calm, just to even have a greater laser focus when it comes to those small moments in the heat, and just to know that you've you've been there before and this is how it's supposed to happen and not not to let anything affect your your mood or your focus, and that really, really helped me. And it also it gets a lot of the distractions out of the way because. If you're spending a lot of time meditating and focusing, it kind of gives you the direction on the, on the days off in between heats, it gives you a direction to follow, which is going to be responsible because it's going to get you to your end goal. Um, so it was kind of like a little reset. I was just doing every single day that, that I learned through the sports psychologist. I'd, I'd do my visualization, my meditation, and then it would set me up for the rest of the day. And I, I would, everything was geared towards the goal, you know? Um, whereas without it, you know, there's just so many distractions, especially when you're a young kid and you're traveling around the world. So, it helped me to win that event. It definitely helped me. Um, I took those principles and what I learned to to qualify and and make it onto the CT too.
0: Hmm. You, me- you mentioned Warwick, right? And and you know, he's one of those surfers who did hit the international stage. And South Africans have been represented on tour since it started in 1976 but the representation's been pretty sparse in terms of uh, what percentage of the tour they've been making up compared to you know americans or hawaiians or australians or brazilians and we've heard a lot of south africans talk about the challenges of breaking out of South Africa, despite the fact that the waves are so good and the collective talent of surfers in that community is so so high, there's just a lot of challenges in terms of getting the financial support, logistically being able to travel the world, and 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 just create a career for yourselves. Is that something that you experience too?
1: Yeah, I've heard that a lot back home. To to be honest with you, I, I call bullshit on it a little bit like it is it is tough no doubt coming from a third world country it's going to be a little bit more expensive but this when you do leave there's so much opportunity out there it, it has that excuse has become kind of a crutch for a lot of surfers coming out of south africa um it's it's kind of already their excuse um so they're going to go and a lot of them will go and party and not do tick all the boxes obviously right. there's a lot of great surfers that come out of South Africa and they do all the right things and they still don't make it. That's just sport. But I do see that excuse sometimes used as a little bit of a a crutch because, I mean, there's great surfers coming from places that are far tougher to come from than South Africa. Mm. A big problem, I think, it's just tough to leave because the waves are so damn good. Um, The waters, especially in in Durban, the water's warm all year. There's waves all year. So when you're traveling and then now all of a sudden you're competing, Sometimes it's going to be in beach breaks and one foot waves, freezing cold, every free surf, there's hundreds of people out there. You have to really be in it. You have to keep that intensity through some seriously difficult days and difficult conditions, and you have to be a little bit insane. (laughs) That's because you lose so much. I mean, especially on, on the QS and even on the CT, you lose so much that, um, if you, if you dwell on it too long and you give yourself too many excuses, it's, it's not sustainable. So you just have to mm. keep on going no matter what the conditions are, no matter what hands you've been dealt and just keep chucking. That's how you can have a long career. So yeah, it's, it's definitely been used as a little, crush. it's, they're not, it's not hundred percent wrong because it's mm. tough, but there's, like I said, there's there's surface coming from way tougher regions and, and becoming world champions.
0: So right. it's doable. Growing up in South Africa and surfing that coastline as much as you have, it, it's world famous for being um, very active uh, sea life. Um, we saw in 2015, you know, the the incident with Mick at, at Jeffreys Bay. I, I'm curious, you know, if you've had many or any uh, run-ins with sharks surfing in South Africa and and. Uh, if so, you can tell us about it and if, if so, and if not, what your kind of general attitude is towards, you know, surfing, um, around those animals.
1: Yeah. So in growing up in, in and around Durban, cause we surf up and down the coast a lot. Um, and you, there's some amazing waves as you know, down, around there that, and there's no shark nets. So that you always feel the presence. I've never seen a shark or had a shark encounter in, um, Durban or around Durban. My first real one was actually in Jeffrey's Bay down at the bottom of the point. Um, there was no one, there was like one foot and there was no one out there and me and my buddy, Simon Nicholson were about to jump off the rocks and there was a little, well, actually i just jumped off the rocks and I was paddling out. He, he had, he was about to jump off the rocks. And as I got out to the back, there was a, a seagull floating in the water about 10 meters away from me. And I was just staring at the seagull and all of a sudden a shock just came and smashed it and it exploded into a thousand feathers right in front of me. And I was like, oh my God, you've (laughs) never seen anyone paddle that fast in your life. I was probably (laughs) levitating on the way in, over the rocks and in. And that was my first ever trip to J-Bay. It was my second day there and I was there for another week (laughs) and I didn't surf. Um, I was... I was so rattled, um, but that's the only shark encounter I've I've had in um, ever, and that was in, at J Bay. So I guess I've, I guess I've been lucky, to touch wood. Uh, Nothing since then. And back home, I guess you, you just become used to your surroundings. You know, a, a lot of people come from overseas; they come and compete or come and surf around South Africa, and it's obviously because of the reputation it has. It's it kind of freaks them out, and they struggle to just be in the moment and enjoy. But, um, you know, we're just so used to it. It it just becomes daily life. Um, But, yeah, not that many encounters, to be honest with you.
0: Well, and you still had to go back to J-Bay at some point and surf again. And and I always think of that with with Mick and the whole idea that, you know, after the, the incident in 2015 and all the... I'm sure he would confide that like it, the, the incident itself wasn't as bad as sort of the media <laughs> sort of um, scrum and the media kind of feeding Frenzy, for lack of a better phrase, that happened after the fact. But then he kind of secretly went there before the event in 2016 and like went there by himself to kind of surf the wave again. And then, um, you know, sort of a tall tale or, or or mythologizing the act but like ended up winning the event, you know, in 2016, which is incredible. But yeah, I mean, you you eventually had to go back to J Bay and, and had to paddle back out. I'm sure it was on your mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I actually often think about that because that's pretty crazy that Mick went back. I, I think I was just really lucky that it happened so young and it was so mm-hmm. early in my, my surfing days. Like I think you know, I'd been surfing for two or three years when it happened. So, you know, when, you, when you're young and you get th- over things really quickly and you forget things really quickly, Um, I think if that same incident had happened in my adult life, I don't know if I would have bounced back (laughs) that quickly. (laughs) I would not know if I would have been back there the next year surfing um, uncrowded J-Bay, but yeah, that's, it's pretty crazy. That Mick came back and won. So cool.
0: Yeah. Going back to your ISA win, did that, you said it, you said it was a big deal. Did that change things for you with your sponsors or with your career aspirations? Did people kind of, start supporting you if not more financially just a little bit more intentionally of like you're going to be our guy like you're going to do the qs and you're going to qualify and you're going to be the next south african on tour
1: it's funny you asked that
0: because it was actually kind of my comeback and it was like because
1: Mm. about just over a year before that i got told by two different orthopedic surgeons that i was never going to surf again because there was they said i had like really really bad chondromalacia of my knees and Mm. Cause they just, my knees just all of a sudden out of nowhere swelled up. I say all of a sudden, I don't know where I was playing indoor soccer, twice a week, <laughs> soccer on the weekends, <laughs> which don't tell my sponsors, they'd be angry. Um, but, um, so my knees just, especially my right knee got really, really bad and just swelled up and the swelling would not go down. And I had mm-hmm. scan after scan after scan and it, it wasn't showing anything drastic. So they just assumed that it was it was um not tracking right and it and because it wasn't tracking right, I'd get all this really bad swelling to the point I, I couldn't straighten or bend my knee. I had like a few degrees movement. So I was going to all these specialists and they were like, well, you can't have surgery on this. It's you have to work on the muscle and get the muscle right. So I spent yeah, almost a year trying to get my muscle right to so my kneecap would track properly so I wouldn't have this swelling issue and like I said, two different orthopedic surgeons told me I'd probably never surf again. Um, and if I did, I'd have to use these huge braces that keep your kneecap in place. And I try to surf with those, and it's just I just burst into tears on the beach after trying to surf with those things. It was impossible. So I thought mm. my career was over. And then um, just
0: and you were you at twenty two at this point? Yeah, I was like oh, yeah. twenty.
1: I was like twenty twenty one. Yeah. And then um, I just signed on uh, my first like proper pro deal with with Quicksilver. I moved over to mm. Silver and they gave me a, a great deal to go on the QS and be their guy back home. And right after that happened, my knees went um, mm. and I was like, Oh, that's it, I guess. But I went and saw a bunch of different specialists. Eventually um, the one guy just told me, he's like, I, I just want you to go and surf. Cause just surf, surf through the pain. I don't care. Just, just go. Was, they can't get any worse. <laughs> and so <laughs> I was like, I guess you're right. So I went and I just surfed through the pain for a couple of weeks. And it was crazy. Like all of a sudden the swelling started going down and I've got my knees back and I did a few QSs and stuff before that event, but no one really believed that I was, I was hundred percent back because it, the news got out and everybody heard what I'd been told. And then Great. the world, I, quali- I managed to get into the team, the SA team through the trials and uh, the world games came around and, and I won that. And I won it with a pretty good performance too. So people could see that I was back. Um, so it right. was a huge, it was a huge moment for me. And then everybody was kind of backing me again after that.
0: Yeah. You know, there's so many people, I mean, we can talk about athletes and surfers in particular, but I think kind of everyone when they end up having a, um, a really threatening injury or, or something like that, they, they end up, focusing on their body so much more after that you know you can look at not to keep using Mick fanning but he comes up a lot but you know mick's hamstring injury and you compare Mick fanning before that injury to McFanning fanning after that injury and how focused he was on his body and performance and awareness and is that something that happened to you as well because again going back to at 42, you're still probably the best surfer I've ever seen in the wave pool at Surf Ranch. And that's not being hyperbolic. Like that's just the truth. <laughs> I think you should have been competing in the Olympics. No question. You're an incredibly fit guy. Did that kind of injury do anything for you in terms of how you took care of your body? 100%. Um,
1: just going back to
0: taking things for granted, I, after that
1: happened, I was like, I'm never going to take my health for granted again. And just being able to surf and being healthy and and just ticking all the right boxes and making sure I'm doing all the right stuff to, to have a lengthy, sustainable career. And also I was even back then thinking about after my career, you know, I want to be healthy and fit. And, um, it, it was, it had a quite a profound effect on me and I I definitely got way more into stretching, eating healthier. When I look back then, it was quite a profound shift to, to what I was doing, but even compared to what I know now, it, it, it's still nothing like I've learned so much more even after I've retired. And I, that's why I think I'm in arguably the best shape of my life now, because I just through educating, I just take everything in like a sponge and I'm willing to try everything once, all the different fads, uh, nutrition, diets, all this um, yoga, Pilates, you know, what I mean, I try everything once at least and see whatever works for me. So um, at the moment, surfing a bunch and stretching is working out just fine.
0: It's a it's a little bit like that Simpsons episode where they find out that Ned Flanders is sixty five and everyone's like how how what what, and he's like well it's just no red meat and no alcohol and no sugar and, and everyone's like oh okay kind of but it's makes sense a lot a lot, lot of truth to that yeah yeah
1: that makes sense yeah I mean I have to admit the the last um, couple years of my career on the on the CT I kind of. I kind of started feeling a little bit of imposter syndrome being on there. Like I kind of felt like my surfing, that whole new school wave had just come in and I, I overreacted a little bit. I should have just kind of stuck to my guns um, and mm. believed that I could keep going, but I'd been on there so long. Like I always, when I was a kid, like if I could just get on there for one year and then I got in there for one year, it's like, if I could just do two years then it's not luck. <laughs> and I ended up being on there for 10 years, but the last couple of years I kind of, let my guard down. I didn't eat as healthy. I didn't. I didn't do all the right things when it came to stretching and keeping fit. Um, I started going for a little bit less of those early morning free surfs and getting warm, and I paid for it. I started getting all sorts of injuries, mm. weird impact injuries, which definitely aided me in my decision to retire at the end. But yeah, it's crazy when you let your guard down a little bit. It can. It can. You pay for it pretty quickly.
0: It's so interesting you say that too, because surfing, especially at the the tip of the spear on the elite championship tour is always progressing so much, but there are elements to like the world's best surfing that are timeless, you know, and if it's speed or power and, and rail surfing, like those will kind of never go out of style, but it, it doesn't shock me that and everyone kind of feels self-conscious at some point you know i remember um sitting around andy and and a few people when he came back in 2010 and he was kind of confessing that he was so rattled because people were doing you know rodeo flips and heats and like these tweaked out airs and stuff and he felt like his surfing was not cutting edge anymore and it was it was so hard to hear because it's like oh my god man if you just surf the way you surf even at 80%, like you were still an elite level surfer because of all your talents, but it is hard, you know, when the media is talking up a certain kind of surfing and the judges are maybe rewarding another type of surfing. And it's one of those things. Is, is that, is that similar to kind of how you felt towards the end too? Totally. 100%. I think,
1: I think a lot of us felt it too. We kind of, kind of felt we were getting left behind a little bit. Um, I do think it was compounded a little bit because I think the judging kind of overcorrected a little bit too much during that period of time um because they were kind of weren't rewarding the progressive stuff for a while like they should be and then they kind of i felt like they did it overcompensated and did it a little bit too much and i think that rattled a lot of us Uh, it got into a lot of our heads and um in in hindsight we probably should have just stuck to our guns because they were they were always still rewarding that power surfing i mean mick won multiple world titles, Joel won multiple world titles and they weren't really doing rodeo flips and, uh, full rotators all the time. So it was there, the points were there.
0: I'd imagine to joining the Quicksilver team, um, I think you said early, early oddies like 2001, 2002 around then, but you were on that team for a while, right? Over a decade at least. And being a teammate with the likes of kelly slater or the likes of Freddie patatia or dane reynolds and and all these sort of elite level surfers and you were amongst them that must have been a cool team to be a part of oh it was so fun we, we had the best time our little crew that we had yeah it was
1: tiago jeremy Freddie, dane dane was on there for a few years obviously kelly um and belly would look after us and uh yeah that was those were the golden years you know when the uh, quicksilver would get us a big mansion somewhere and if they'd fly in a chef and we really got the treatment it was really cool and it was we had such a really cool supportive uh group going around together so yeah i've had very fond memories of those years for sure
0: big indies trader for boat trips and you know just hanging out not having not having to be in young guns but just hanging out (laughs) exactly (laughs)
1: yeah yeah it was good times man
0: as far as your performance on the championship tour, you know, decade on there, what were some of the highlights for you? It, it could be certain events. It could be certain venues or just or even just the way you felt like you were surfing. What are the moments that stand out to you as kind of the the peak moments for you competitively on the championship tour?
1: Yeah, I guess the, the, the two biggest moments, I, they weren't really super headliney moments, but it was just also just because of the, con- the context and the circumstances I was in at the time was, I guess, I think it was Chope's in 2011, when I was the replacement mm-hmm. surfer the whole year, and that's when they had the mid-year turnover and the cut. And I was the replacement surfer in a few CTs, and I got into J-Bay and got through a heat or two and got some points, and then I got the late call-up into Chopu And I knew that um, because I wasn't guaranteed into New York, the event after that, before after the cut, I knew that I had to get a third at Chope's to qualify to get onto the CT. And I came in as a replacement, flew and I got there on the morning. The event started and on borrowed boards. I borrowed boards from Alain Rieu because I was in France doing the QSs and my biggest board was a 5.7. <laughs> so, and it was, I, it was huge it that was, year. Yeah, too. The, the code red year, it was gigantos. I was absolutely shitting myself the whole event. Um, but I needed a third and I went and got a third. Um, it was the scariest week of my life, but it was probably the best week of my life to do that under those circumstances. And, um, and then I think it was the year after that we went into, we're at steamer lane, Santa Cruz, and I needed a third again to, to qualify before going to Hawaii. Cause you know, pipeline's almost a write off. You never know who you're going to get. It's so hard to get points there. So I was like, damn, I need a third to to be on tour next year. And I went and did it at Santa Cruz as well. I'd I'd never really surfed there before. And I'm always, pretty bad in cold water. And everyone's like, you have to use booties and I cannot surf in booties. Um, but luckily the water was uh, weirdly, really warm for that time of year. So I didn't have to surf in booties. And I went and got a third, um, knocked out uh, Taj who had my number for a big part of my career, but still got the third and requalified.
0: Yeah, I remember that. I think that the year that you got your third in Tahiti was also the year that you drew compatriot Jordy Smith in round three. And that weird thing happened where he he got hurt, yeah. And then the officials stopped the heat and then yeah. restart, and then there was a resurf, which rarely, rarely happens. Yeah,
1: the first time <laughs> ever was a
0: big deal. And yeah, it was. The- yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure, I'm sure it was. You must have been experiencing a mix of emotions because you had so much on the line for yourself, and then you've got it's happening against you know probably someone that you're close enough with in the sense of another South African. And just having to go out and be like, all right, let's go do this again, <laughs> Yeah, have to beat him again. Yeah, that
1: was such a weird day. I mean, Jordy was my best mate on tour. We, before I started traveling exclusively with the Quicksilver tour, Jordy and I traveled together. And that was such a weird day because the waves were so gnarly, I was stoked I lost. Even though it was the first time ever in history that ever stopped the heat for an injury and then restarted it and finished it. So yeah. I, I guess when when he got injured, they stopped the heat for nine minutes. And it made it, it, our heat ended up being 39 minutes long. And at the end of 30 minutes, I was in the lead. So technically I won the heat, but they extended it. And then he got a wave at the end, after being injured and and went into the lead and then he won the heat. So, the, neither of us wanted to resurf. He, he thought he had won and I thought, hey, after 30 minutes, I was in the lead, so I should have won. But I was like, uh, it's all good. And I, also in that heat, um, climbing onto the jet ski, the jet ski driver pulled off before I got my other hand on. So, yeah. I had I was holding on with just one hand on the on the rope, and the jet ski drive pull, pulled off, and my shoulder went out. So I was like, "Oh, my shoulder's done. Um, I'm just gonna chill. You're good, Jordy. It's it's fine." But I probably should have been in the in the next round. It's all good though, because it was just I was so scared. But then um, Kelly Kelly was like, "No, no, come with me. Come with me." And he puts me on the ski and he drives me to the doctor. He's like whatever you put in my foot that one year, put it in his shoulder. And I was like, well, Kelly's Kelly's a nice guy. He's looking after me. And then I realized Kelly and Geordie were one and two in the world at that time.
0: <laughs> resurf.
1: Um, anyway, I, I guess we we had to resurf the heat, which was the the right thing to do at the end of the day. And um, we both paddled out there and we were just looking. At our, my shoulder was a wreck and his ribs were all torn up. He had like torn his muscles and his cartilage in between his ribs. So and we were surfing the scariest waves of our lives. So we are kind of laughing, but also kind of like just terrified and uh, <laughs> it was super low scoring, but I got him that heat and then end up uh, making it to the semis and re-qualify, but it was just a crazy event.
0: In your 10 years on tour, you know, 2005 through, through 2014, your ranking hovered sort of in the twenties, mostly the whole time. And that was for a long time, That was that was middle of the pack because there were 45 surfers on the men's tour before the field reduction. When you were on tour and in in at that kind of level, did your goals change? Like did you kind of were you frustrated that you weren't breaking into the teens or into the top ten? Did you feel like you were surfing as well as you could? Was there a world title, you know on your on your mirror that you wrote down and said, "Um, this is my goal." I, I'm curious to understand what your your thought process was in terms of career success on the championship tour throughout the decade,
1: yeah. I- I got super frustrated, actually, because I just wanted to see progression. I was never like, I'm going to be world champ this year. I, I, I maybe would have got there if I saw the progression. And, and I showed signs through my career. Like in 2007, at the halfway mark, I was in the top 10, and then I got injured and missed the rest of the year. So that could have been a really promising year. Mm. Um, 2006, actually, I think I finished in the, in the low 20s as well, and I surfed, although I didn't miss any events, I surfed a bunch of those events with a dis- dislocated big toe. Um, so I probably Mm. could have got through a bunch more heats than I did for half of that year. And, um, so there's a few, there's definitely a few points I left out there in my career, unfortunately, but I definitely felt a lot of frustration, especially the, the back half of my career on the CT that I was just kind of always in that same spot and just on the bubble the whole time, which was a bit of a stress because, and also it meant a lot more traveling because I was doing the QS as well on a few of those years. So yeah, it, it was tough to take, but then. At the same time, I always, I always did feel very grateful to be doing what I was doing, especially having the upbringing I had. Starting surfing so late, I, I always try to put things into perspective and go. Although I'm bummed, I'm not getting to where I, I want to go and what feels right. I mean, like what I've done, I, I feel like I've overachieved massively. So it was, it was a weird mixed emotions kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, for is the CT is so interesting to me because every surfer on there or more or less surfer on there from the time they're very little has basically been told you'd be world champ, you know, and so few of them ever even put a competitive singlet on, let alone do well enough on the QS, let alone even make the CT, let alone even survive on the CT for a year. So I think it is all relative and about that perspective and having done what you did for a decade and the performances you put in and the moments that you had is priceless and it's super impressive in the fact that you're still, I would say this, like for, for, for maybe the judging shifting in a certain direction for a few years, I'd actually think that the judging would reward your surfing today at 42, maybe better than it did, you know, 10 years ago, which is interesting to me, but also the decision for you to step away from full-time competition. How did that, how did that come about for you? And and what were the steps you took to say, okay, yep, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore and what was your plan post full-time competition?
1: Yeah, so I, I knew it was kind of, I was getting kind of towards the end when I wasn't stoked when I won Heats. Like mm-hmm. I just, I didn't get that that same feeling of happiness and euphoria like after winning a heat. but I was still getting devastated after I lost Heats. So it was kind of just lose-lose. And I was just going from event to event to event. And even when I did really well, it, I just wasn't that happy. Like I, I just... I think I just run its course. I realized I wasn't gonna win a world title. I realized I wasn't gonna break into the top ten. And like I said before, I, I had this kind of weird imposter syndrome feeling where I didn't I didn't feel like I deserved to be on there. And hindsight, I, I know that's all that's all nonsense, and I probably should just it's the best career in the world. I probably should have just put my head down. But you know, at the at the time that that's what it was. So yeah, a big part of that was was just how I was feeling, whether I was winning or losing heats. And then um, on top of that. I'd kind of decided I was, um, I was probably going to be my last year on tour, probably midway through that last year, which was 2014. And then about a month after that, I, I got to France and Paul Speaker, who was the CEO of, of WSL at the time, just approached me unsolicited and said, Hey, when, when you, when you decide to hang up your boots, whenever that is, um, that there's always a spot for you at WSL, I wanted you to come on board. Um, and help KP out. So, um, and I was like, oh, that that could be a pretty cool gig to look into. (laughs) And then I was like, well, it just so happens that I actually am retiring this year because I made the decision and I I did an announcement like two weeks later and uh, the rest is history. here we are.
0: Here we are. And we're going to get to that history in just a minute. We got a couple more topics and some listener questions for you, but we're going to take one more quick break to get a word in from our sponsors. We'll be right back. All right, so so we've done ancient history. we'll do we'll do present day history. You mentioned uh, a really, really close relationship with Geordie Smith. Um, you guys are both from Durban. You've probably more so than anyone else um, had an insight into who he is and his talent and his career growing up for him. What is your take on? I, I could ask you a billion questions about Geordie Smith, but we'll just keep it specific. What is your take on where he's at? In terms of talent, motivation, career, heading into 2022,
1: Jordy's an absolute beast. I mean, I, and and I mean this, and this, this is I mean this completely as a compliment. He's massively underachieved. Like it, it honestly freaks me out that he hasn't had two world titles, even three world titles, for how good he is and how well he surfs, how well he competes. Um, it freaks me out just being a friend of his that that he hasn't got there. But Having said that, I think he's one of those guys that the way he surfs, how technically proficient he is, how little energy, he, like needless energy he expends when he surfs, he could have a career, another 10 years easy on his career. And I have no doubt that he's going to be in multiple world title sh- shots in the future. So the dream's definitely not over. In fact, he might even be in a better sp- headspace than ever to achieve that. Just with everything that's happened, he's he's taken some time off. He's now had a, a child. He's really settled. So I, I just think that yeah, he's he's definitely underachieved in his career, unfortunately. But he's got uh, he's got the talent and he's got the drive. Um, he seems very very focused and and rearing to go, which is always a good thing. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how he does this year.
0: It it is like I I guess if if you weren't around for it and you weren't close to it. In in some sense, you know, when he, I think it would have been two thousand. I want to say two thousand eight, two thousand nine. It was the year that he moved from Billabong to O'Neill. He didn't have stickers on his board. He won the QS by a huge margin. He had all these like banger video parts and like um, Stranger Than Fiction, whatever other films were coming out, and the hype around him was so, like really kind of unprecedented in a lot of ways, you know, and and. It it was almost a de facto, it was almost de facto that he was going to win multiple world titles and be in contention as his rookie season, you know. So, uh, A, I think that's unfair to put on anybody, no matter how good they are. And B, to actually have seen him weather that and, and kind of go up and down through the system and deal with injuries and kind of deal with just growing up as a human being. Uh, it's almost a success story that he is as fit and focused and surfing as well as he is now ahead of 2022, just without any achievements kind of mapped to that, you know, and he has achieved, he won CTs and stuff, but I just mean the fact that he's sort of hurdled that, that really strange time during the 2010s for, for surfing.
1: Yeah. When, when, when Geordie came on, uh, I think, cause he came on in the same year as Reynolds. I, I, I think that's the most, hyped top two surfers have ever been and i but i also think it's the most valid hype because they were mm. th- those two were, were doing probably the best surfing anybody's ever seen at the time and the most progressive and yeah it just it just goes to show because i, I mean i was traveling with him even as his, his first couple years on the ct and i would free surf with him every day and just go i, I don't know how this guy loses seats i really don't mm. he was always the best free surfer at at the events, no matter what the conditions were, um, and then he would he would paddle out, and I guess that's just what it's like being being a rookie on the CT. You not get, you can be the best guy ever, but you're not guaranteed to get through heats. You still have to figure it out. There's kind of a formula to it, um, and it changes from event to event. It changes uh, when the conditions change, and I guess coming on so so young with so much hype, I think he and all we did too expected it to be a little bit easier for him than it was. Mm. But he once, once he hit his stride, he really hit his stride. And uh, yeah, he's had an incredible career. And um, yeah, I mean, I say he's, he's underachieved, but that's just because I, I, I just know what he, what he can get to. And I mean that as a, as a huge compliment because I, I'd love to see him win a world title. I'm such a fan. But yeah, he's had an incredible career and uh, looking forward to see what he's going to do next.
0: Yeah, he's one of the guys I'm most excited to see back in in full form in 22, fully uh, recovered from injury and with the the schedule we have. And um, I'm I'm excited to see what he does. In terms of younger South Africans coming up through the ranks, how how close is your finger to the pulse of the next generation of South African surfers? And does anyone stand out to you in terms of who you think will make a crack at the championship tour, men or women? Yeah, obviously we have... Uh,
1: Matty Mcgivernay, who who had his rookie year on the CT this year, and depending how he goes in Helib, might be on the CT next year. He's a uh, he's an incredible surfer. He does really really big turns, and he really excels when there's uh, a lot of swell and a lot of power, which is great for uh, the CT schedule. Um, and then we've got uh, some other kids like uh, Aiden Mason Camp coming out of Cape Town. Really, has he's got insane technique. I think he has a a lot of potential to potentially qualify eventually. Um, there's a kid out of Durban called Luke Thompson, who's got the whole bag of tricks, charges. Um, there's some there's some good talent coming up for sure. It's exciting times for South Africa. I think this next generation could surprise a lot of people.
0: And what about yourself, man? We talked about it. I, I you said you're you're fitter than ever. I, I I will die on the hill if you were the best surfer I've ever seen in the surf ranch wave, which I don't think <laughs> is an easy wave. Um, you, you're dominating the Los Angeles surfing scene. Like, would you would you consider putting the jersey back on for a QS? <laughs> I don't know. I think there'd be a little bit of a conflict of interest if I if I did it. Uh, QS. yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. But, but you know, it's like yeah. Uh, it's, it's say say you know you're living in LA. You have got your beautiful wife yeah, yeah. Shauna, and say say you're like you know what I'm gonna I'm I, I'm, I'm this is all hypothetical. I do not want you to leave. You're one of my favorite traveling buddies. I do, mm-hmm. I do not want you to leave. Just for the record, but in, say I die and that's no longer a problem for you. Would you out of sort of grief quit the WSL and be like, Dave always wanted me to put a jersey on and do the QS. Is that in the cards? I
1: actually I actually would love to because I have such a different perspective now, especially the le- compared to the latter part of my career. Um, now I would love to compete with the mindset I have now where I'm not taking everything like it's life or death and and just – you know how you can get so in your head with things. and and the back half of my career was kind of when social media came by. And I was there reading all the bad comments and just got into this whirlwind. <laughs> I did that whole thing. All the things you shouldn't do, I started doing that. so um I would I would actually love to because I miss competing so much. It's one of it's one of the toughest things that, about this gig, to be honest with you because i'm I'm a competitor, whether I'm playing tennis or soccer, I just love it. so I miss competing
0: so much, so you, you never know one day. All right. Well, you're on the record now. So I, so, when I go, you go. Exactly. All right. Well, speak, well and, and fortunately, you know, you work at the WSL, so there's no mean comments coming from social media everywhere. Um, <laughs> but uh, we did reach out to the Instagram community to get some questions for you. And we got a bunch, but we, we've whittled them down to a few. And the first question is from underscore Troy underscore Matthews, who asks, what is your worst wipeout?
1: My worst wipeout by far is one I had in Fiji at Cloudbreak. Um, it wasn't a big day, but I think it was. I think the per- swell period that day was at about twenty seconds. It was one of those days at, in Cloudbreak when it's two foot twenty seconds, but it still comes in there at like four to six foot. But the most powerful, squarest four to six foot you've ever seen. And uh, I decided it would be a great idea to pull into a closeout at the end of one of my waves. Uh, it was a heat against CJ Hobgood. And uh went over the falls, eventually it clamped me and went over the falls and landed square on the reef, cut the whole side of my body, cut the the back of all all over my back. There was skin missing. Um, all of my elbows, the skin was all gone. I hit my head on the reef and I blacked out for a second, S- still went on to lose the heat <laughs> just to just to rub salt <laughs> in all my wounds, and then um flew back to LA that night. Um and got staph infection the next day, got hospitalized. And I had to spend a day with all these RVs with antibiotics going up in my in body. And, uh, the, there was a nurse that spent hours and hours and hours picking coral out of, out of my body. I just had pieces of coral everywhere. <laughs> um, so that was, yeah, that was a fun. wipeout. part <laughs> clear,
0: clear front runner for. Worst yeah. <laughs> yeah, nothing really comes close to that one, uh. All right. Second question is from McKay underscore Holland, who asks, what wave would you like back on or added to the tour? Hmm. So I guess it could be one we've had before or one that we've never had. And you can add it to the CT.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Um, you know what? If this is going to be out of left field, but and because it was such a crazy wave. It's weird and wonderful. But that wave in Chile, Erica, <laughs> it was and and I'm going to be honest. I didn't enjoy competing, <laughs> but but watching it was insane. It was just so unpredictable and so heavy. But the the rewards and the payoff was just amazing. Like the the barrels, um, Andy. Won, I think Andy won that event. Maybe he had Bobby in the final. It was just incredible, and it's just so different to anything else out there that I think it would be a cool wave to watch.
0: It was. That was. Ins- I, I remember I was there at that event, and I'll tell the story because it's worth telling. But you know the before we had before we acquired before we had a commissioner's office. The decision to r- whether we ran events or not during the window was a three-person sort of tribunal, and it was the surfers' rep, it was the event organizer, and it was the head judge. And at the this was the Rip Curl Pro Search Eureka. I want to say twenty two thousand seven maybe, um, and the head judge is Perry Hatchett. Uh, the event organizer was Neil Ridgway and the surfers rep was, uh, Phil McDonald. And it was huge every day, <laughs> every day <laughs> I would get there early because set up and watch these like crazy waves blasting the reef and no one was surfing. No one was free surfing every morning. It was basically like, it was a weird group of people. It was Josh Kerr, Ramon Navarro, Luke Munro, and Chris Ward were the only people I ever saw free surf before, before the call. And every day it was yeah you know, whatever it was what were we gonna call it eight to twelve feet fifteen feet I don't know and Neil Ridgeway would be saying it's pumping it's the world's best surfers get out there <laughs> and Phil Phil McDonald would be like no way it's too dangerous we're not going it's way too dangerous um, because what people place. probably if you go back and watch it it's basically like. It's on an urchin encrusted slab and there's not yeah. like a keyhole or a channel. Like to get in, you basically have to bounce off the slab <laughs> and be caught by the lifeguards.
1: It's so heavy.
0: The, the urchin's there on next level. <laughs> like, this big yeah, and there's like, so naughty. A- Adriana went to the hospital, Roy and Bryson went to the hospital, everyone got messed up. But yeah. I, this went on like this little pageant every morning with Neil saying, it's pumping, you're the world's best surfers, get out there. Phil McDonald saying, No way, it's too dangerous. And Perry Hatchet siding with the surfers and going, like, yeah, it's too dangerous. And then on whatever day it was, the fifth, fifth day or the sixth day or whatever. It's exactly the same. It's maybe even a little bit bigger. Neil says his part. Phil says his part. And Perry finally goes. It's not getting any smaller, running out of time. So <laughs> yeah. you guys can get out there. Like, Yeah. No, that was an insane event. Good yeah. watch. Good, good viewing, though.
1: Yeah. Selfishly, as a fan, I'd like to watch it. Competing in it was, was scary, though. Those urchins freaked me out.
0: Final question from the Instagram community. Celebrity question. This is from Elo underscore Eric Logan, who asks, when is the tennis death match with Elo? Brew is ducking me. <laughs> I told them I,
1: I carry my tennis racket around with me like a sword. I'm, I'm ready to whip it out at any time. So, <laughs>
0: just, <laughs> so I'm ready. Just I'm a, always ready. Gunfighter. Okay, well, well, we'll definitely check that out. Thanks to the Instagram community. You can always find us at, at the Lineup Pod on Twitter and Instagram. We do our best to respond to everybody. Final segment. It is now time for the lightning round presented by Michelob Ultra Pure Gold. These are 10 questions. Answer as fast as you can. Alrighty. If you could only have one board set up for the rest of your life—single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad bonzer, or finless—which would you choose? Thruster. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Pizza. Last book you read? Ooh.
1: <laughs> uh, Lance Armstrong's book, whatever that was called, not about the Back.
0: Yeah. Best surf film ever. Pump. The Le Pump. One wave you never have to go back to. <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to. Um, for me personally, bells. I just could not surf that wave. If you only get to surf one wave for the rest of your life. New pier, Durban. Best person to share the lineup with. My brothers. Worst person to share the lineup with. Dave Prodan. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first time anyone's ever said that. <laughs> Finish kidding. this sentence. I, I will next achieve a state of happiness by. I will
1: next achieve a state of happiness by waking up tomorrow morning
0: and going surfing in El Porto. Travis Logie, thank you so much for joining us on the lineup. Thanks for being my friend and uh, I'll do better in the lineup with you. (laughs) Love you, bro. Thanks. Love you too. Thanks, buddy. So that's it, that's the lineups conversation with Durbin's Travis Logie. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you tune in this weekend for the Michelob Ultra Pure Gold Challenger Series event at Haleiwa, determining who's next in terms of qualifying for the Elite WSL Championship Tour in 2022. One more shot in the arena of the North Shore, do not miss it. This episode is produced by Henry Beyer with art direction by Jason Penning and copywriting by Dan Willen. Thanks to them and thanks to our sponsors, we appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that is recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash and the Kumeyaay Native American people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday.